Today's scripture reading is taken from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Thank you, Malise, for reading God's word for us this morning. Good morning, beloved family and friends in Christ. And to those of you present here in this worship service, I'm so glad that you can be here in person. I hope that God's Word, our singing and our fellowship will encourage your hearts. And to those of you watching the service this uh, morning via live streaming, welcome as well. To our new friends and visitors who are with us today, I'm glad you can be with us too. Today is Palm Sunday. The, day before Good Friday, the, the Sunday before Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Today marks the first day of Passion Week when some 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem. During this week, Jesus was arrested, crucified, died, buried and rose again on the third day. As a church, we'll be covering three messages from the Gospel of Mark for today, Good Friday, as well as Resurrection Sunday or Easter. All three messages will focus on Jesus Christ, our servant, 
Saviour. Next slide, please. So do invite your friends to join us for Good Friday and Easter. We will also make available some gospel tracts uh, as well as a booklet uh, for your friends. So we have this gospel track, Two Ways to Live, as well as this book, Essential Jesus, which comprised the Gospel of Luke. This will be free to give out to our non-Christian friends and our new uh, Christian friends and visitors. And as members, you are free to take some for use in your own personal evangelism. These resources will be placed downstairs later on level 3 at, next to the book table. I brought a whole bunch of them, but there's still a limited number. So feel free to take them. The only uh, thing is that I ask that you use the resource. So don't just take them and put on a shelf somewhere, but use it, give it out. Make sure that they are, are steward well. So let us pray now as we look at the first passage from the Gospel of Mark this morning. Father God, open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your Word. May your Holy Spirit tutor us in your truths and cause the affections in our hearts to arise as we see Jesus more clearly. Help us to follow Jesus more nearly and to treasure Jesus more dearly. Please help us to walk in your ways so that we increasingly reflect you and your glory. Do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How should a disciple of Jesus Christ live? What should a disciple of Jesus Christ value? How should we live, especially when we are in positions of power and authority? How should disciples as employers treat our employees? How should disciples as government officials interact with citizens? How should disciples as church leaders relate to church members? How should disciples as church members relate to each other? How should a disciple of Jesus Christ live? And what should a disciple of Jesus Christ value? Beloved, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and Mark's point and purpose are to present and defend Jesus' call to discipleship. If we look at the Gospel of Mark, the first half of the Gospel of Mark shows us that Jesus is the Son of God who comes in power and authority. The second half of the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus is the servant saviour. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the pivot, the turning point in the gospel comes in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah anointed one. Today, for today, we are going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, which is a part of this more extensive section that covers Mark 8.22 to 10.52. In these three chapters, Jesus makes three predictions about His coming crucifixion, death and resurrection. That's one in chapter 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10 respectively. And after His predictions, Jesus teaches about discipleship about what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. And this section of Mark 8:22 to 10:52 is book ended by two accounts of two blind men. In Mark 8:22 to 26, 
Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida. And in Mark 10, 46-52, Jesus heals the blind Bartimaeus. This book ends are there for a reason. It's essential. As a literary tool, Mark often uses stories to interpret stories. And this is one of the interpretive key for us to read and understand the Gospel of Mark. So, the story of the blind man helps us to make sense of chapter 8 to 10. It tells us that the followers of Jesus, despite Jesus' prediction and teaching, they are blind to what kind of Christ or Messiah anointed one that Jesus is. And because they they are blind, they need Jesus to heal their eyes so that they can see Jesus for who He truly is, the servant Saviour. So with this in mind as our context, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. And there will be three subsections in today's message, and the outlines is as follow on the screen in front of you. Uh, we get Jesus predicting His death and resurrection for the third time in verses 32 to 34. We're going to be talking about how the cross at Calvary comes before glory. And this comes in verses 35 to 41. And lastly, a challenge for us. Will you be served and will you serve? In the last uh, a few verses, in verses 42 to 45. So keep your Bibles open, keep your pen and a notebook ready. Follow me in your Bibles as we look at today's passage. You know, I find that as I age, I do not remember things as well. And I'm really thankful for Carrie, who often has the unenviable task of reminding me two, three, four times of the things I need to do as I'm usually slow to remember. So you need to go up and thank Carrie because she does a lot of things in the church office. And this passage begins with Jesus predicting for the third time his death and resurrection to his disciples. But his disciples, they are not slow to remember, not like me. Instead, they are slow to see and understand. They fail to understand what kind of Messiah Jesus is. So we catch up with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, Mark explicitly identifies Jesus' destination as Jerusalem, the holy city. And as we read in a call to worship just now in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 to 7, we see in this account Jesus setting his face like a flint. He was resolutely walking ahead of his followers. And the followers, which included the 12 disciples, they were amazed. But why? Why were they amazed? They recognized a change in Jesus. Jesus has this kind of new intensity and was walking out in front of the group, as we see in the verses just now. Instead of his usual position as a rabbi, walking beside them. And Jesus' followers responded with amazement. But those who were following feared. Very curious. Why were they afraid? This answer, the answer almost certainly relates to Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. 
and Jesus' seeming acceptance of it. Just think with me, if Jesus is the political Messiah the disciples think He is, if Jesus were to li- uh, role is to liberate Israel from His enemies, and Jesus now is heading to Jerusalem, this can only mean one thing, a war, a conflict with the Romans. This also mean, uh, potentially meant a civil war, since the priestly leadership will not be favorable to this bunch of peasants coming in and uh, threatening his power and his position. So Jesus' new intensity therefore produces amazement from all his followers, but fear of war among some who begin to fall back. Jesus again seeks to set the record straight about who he is as the Messiah, and he took his 12 disciples aside again for private tuition. And we see this in verses 33 to 34, Jesus telling his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus gives the third prediction of his coming death and resurrection. All three passion predictions identify Jesus as the Son of Man. And this is in uh, reference to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, which describes the Son of Man coming with power and authority. However, rather than Jesus receiving power and authority right now, all three accounts tell us of Jesus being killed speaks of the resurrection after three days. And Jesus speaks of himself being delivered over to the ruling priests and experts in the law. We see this in verse 34. And when you note this curious way the sentence is written, there's a passive voice about this. Jesus is delivered over. This is a divine passive. It refers to God acting in this event. And only in this thick Third prediction, do we see the two-step nature of Jesus' trial? He will first be condemned to death by the Jewish leaders. And then he will be handed over to the Gentiles or the Roman authorities for execution. They will then mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. The events described here occur rapidly in the account of Mark that follows in in the Passion Week that is to come. But death is not the end. Because after three days, Jesus will rise. He will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus predicts the coming events, which are neither tragic nor unexpected. They are part of God's purpose and plan for the Messiah and for the salvation that He will accomplish. God is purposefully sovereign over Jesus' suffering. And Jesus will be vindicated by God raising Him from the dead. Beloved, God is purposefully sovereign. Nothing, absolutely nothing that happens to us is outside His good and loving control. God took the greatest tragedy, the innocent Jesus Christ crucified, died on the cross, and He turned it, turned that for good. Jesus died on the cross in our place for the forgiveness of our sins accomplishing God's redemption plan. You know, beloved, 
Some of you may be experiencing suffering and distress. You may be experiencing a stressful work environment with an overbearing boss. Or you may face challenging family situation. Or you may face a difficult long-term health situation. Or even face the responsibility of providing long-term care. Or you may face disapproval and subtle opposition or, or for just being a Christian and, and keeping your Christian weakness among your family, your colleagues, your friends. Living amidst suffering is never easy. And suffering, get this, is not good. Suffering is a product of the fall. But God can and will work out good out of our suffering. So my friends, I encourage you, rest on God's purposeful sovereignty. Everything that you are experiencing has passed through the loving, sovereign hand of our Father God. And it will turn out ultimately for your good. But also a word to those who are suffering. Be open to the care of the church. Allow us to love you and care for you in your time of need. William Shakespeare, the renowned playwright and poet, wrote, Some glory in their birth, some in their skill, some in their wealth, some in their body's force, some in their garments, through uh, though newfangled ill, some in their hawks and hounds, some in their horses, and every humour has its adjunct pleasure, wherein finds a joy above the rest. Shakespeare, he's an astute observer of human behaviour, that's why his plays are so good, right? He notes that we tend to seek glory for ourselves. In other words, we are glory hounds. We seek popularity, fame, praise, acclaim, or renown for ourselves. And in doing so, robbing God of His glory. And we see two glory hounds right now in the following verses. Verse 35 to 41. We see James and John approaching Jesus and they forget Jesus' recent words in Mark 10, 31. Next slide, please. But many who are first will be last and the last first. They sought to be first. And we see this in the two verses on the screen in front of you. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? We see James and John approach Jesus and they make a play for an authoritative role in the kingdom because they misunderstood who Jesus is. Despite Jesus' many teaching otherwise, they understood Jesus to be a political messiah. Coming into power right now, deliberate Israel from Roman occupation. They expected kingdom and glory now. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem amid expectations that He is the Messiah. And, and James and John, they are thinking, but who will be His chief advisors when He assumes the throne? So James and John, they seize this opportunity to make their requests. And you see, they are quite smart. They, by asking Jesus to grant whatever we ask, in essence, they are hoping to receive kind of like a blank check approval from Jesus, even before Jesus hears the nature of his, their requests. But Jesus is too smart to fall for this. 
And Jesus asked a question to pursue the matter further. And what James and John said, what they said next revealed their hearts. Because they said in verse 37, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. What did they do? They requested seats of honour and glory on thrones next to the Messiah in His throne room. And in your glory here does not mean heavenly glory or the glory of Jesus' second coming. The disciples, James and John, they were thinking of the glory of an earthly messianic kingdom in Jerusalem with all its benefits for them. In one sense, you know, the request of James and John is commendable because it shows that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus will ultimately prove victorious. But yet, at the same time, this request is appalling. Because Jesus has been repeatedly teaching the disciples the humble servant role of faithful disciples. To be first, they must become last. James and John certainly have not learned this lesson. Jesus also predicted his suffering and death for the third time. The two must not have been listening. I mean, Jesus just told them of his death and the next thing they asked for is for glory for themselves. They were still spiritually dull and blind and they did not understand Jesus' messianic role. And in the next verse, Jesus said to them in verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Their request is misguided. They do not understand either the nature or the gravity of Jesus' messianic role. And Jesus, by asking them, are you able to drink? This is a rhetorical question, meaning you, you, James and John, you cannot drink this. However, the two take this as a genuine question. I mean, it shows how they are missing the entire point. And they answer the affirmative in verse 39. And what Jesus does is Jesus compares his suffering to two very similar images, a cup and baptism or immersion. Both are metaphors for Jesus' coming suffering and death. And we see that Jesus will use this cup metaphor again in Gethsemane. See, the cup is something you drink. So uh, picture-wise, it talks about something you experience. It usually speaks of suffering, in particular divine judgment. As applied to Jesus, this metaphor implies that Jesus will experience the wrath of God as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. And if you look at Old Testament, suffering is sometimes described in the Old Testament with imagery of an overwhelming flood of water. So the word baptized here carries this sense of being overwhelmed, being flooded. Here it refers to Jesus being swept away by death, by the events that are about to happen uh, shortly in Jerusalem. And we see verses 39 and 41. James and John responding said to Jesus, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and, or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now James and John hear Jesus' words as a call to commitment. 
you know, my friends, you can almost picture them, the pair, the sons of thunder, puffing up the chairs and say, you know, I, we, we, we are able, you know, expressing their willingness to suffer and die for Jesus. Because they're still lightly thinking of martyrdom in the coming Messianic war. Though their request for the best seats was misguided, you know, at least they showed some courage and a willingness to answer Jesus' call to give up his, their life for Him and His cause. And Jesus responds by reaffirming the cause of their commitment. Though they cannot drink Jesus' cup, they will indeed suffer. And so, in their way, experience Jesus' cup and baptism. You know, the book of Acts tells us that James was martyred and beheaded by King Herod. On the other hand, church, uh, church tradition tells us that John was bought alive not once, but twice. He survived that and he lived out his old age, exile on the Isles of Patmos. James and John really did drink the cup and baptize with the suffering that Jesus experienced. They will suffer for Jesus, but granting such places of honour is not for Jesus to decide. But it has been granted for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 40. We see here it has been prepared. It's another divine passive indicating that this decision, this prerogative belongs to God alone. So who are those for whom it has been prepared? The text here doesn't really indicate, doesn't really say, and perhaps this is the point, that only God determines such things. It's not by merit or hard work, but by humble submission to God that rank is determined in the kingdom. The scheme of James and John has not gone unnoticed by other disciples. The other ten disciples, they now become indignant and express their selfish anger towards them. Get that. They were angry not because of the two brothers' insensitivity to Jesus' teaching, but because James and John has beaten them and in their eyes taken the price of power and authority. All the disciples wanted the best seats in the kingdom. The disciples continue to show their spiritual blindness and insensitivity The cross precedes and grounds our discipleship. We see here in this account, it's always the cross before the crown, Golgotha before glory. The disciples must experience suffering before receiving glory. And this principle reflects the upside-down nature of the gospel. The gospel is counter-cultural. You know, as human beings, we often want glory now. We should, we, should, we should be careful not to value what the world values, but to treasure what citizens of God's kingdom treasure. Beloved, you know, as a church, we should have different values and priorities as we submit to God's word. Jesus' values and instructions should guide our methods and goals. Have we allowed our self-centered desire for health, wealth, status and fame to seep into our church. And one way to diagnose this is to simply listen to our prayers during the weekend services. Now, one author writes, describing a typical Sunday morning service in a church following the rites of what he calls orthodox pretend Christianity. He writes this. He says he's observed the pastor praying, 
oh dear, wonderful Father of our incredibly unbelievable experience. We like to feel assured that we may always come to you when we feel like it. And now, dear Lord, we want quite naturally and simply and just in the Word to ask you very frankly, give us our heart's desires right now. You are our comforter. And as the old story puts it, so you are our friend because we are very fond of comfort. What about our prayers and our services and our small groups and our private prayers? Are our prayers more similar to James and John? We want glory right now. We want renown right now. Seeking to bring our own needs and self-glory. Or do we reflect Jesus' servant-heartedness and other-centeredness? My friends, we must not let our cultural idols shape our goals. And we see that our prayers not only reveal our hearts, but also shape them. So learn to pray prayers that are Jesus-centered, gospel-centered, other-centered. So my friends, beloved, I urge us not to fall into a prosperity gospel-like culture where God serves only to meet my needs of my desire for health, wealth, status, and renown. Rather, let us be other-centered, praying for the cause of the gospel, praying for others. Let us pursue goal, our growth in living out Christ's words and ways so that we will increasingly reflect God's character as a church, thereby bringing Him glory. You know, a BBC article in 2012 featured uh, this British uh, man, Rick Fink, Fink runs the Butler Valley School. I didn't really know there was such a school. Okay? Training butlers for service in stately homes and private residences. And some aspects of the role are timeless, governed by unspoken etiquette and code of conduct. Uh, Rick Fink tells us, a butler needs to be reliable, discreet, trustworthy, and your life revolves around your employer. You know, the UK still keeps its tradition of having servants serve those in status and power. And in case we dismiss this as something peculiar to the British and, and, or a practice of the rich and powerful, don't we as Singaporeans often feel we deserve good service? Often at banquets at we and uh, uh, wedding feasts, don't we demand to be served well? Let's be honest, we like to be served by others. Jesus speaks of service in verses 42 to 45. But Jesus turns that upside down. Verses 42 to 44. And Jesus calls them, called them, his disciples, to him and said to them. So we see again Jesus calling his disciples together for yet another private tuition. They have consistently failed to respond to Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' teaching here in these last three verses will serve as the climax of Jesus' teaching on the suffering role of the Messiah and what it means to bear your cross as his disciples. Jesus begins by contrasting leadership in the world with leadership in God's kingdom with two pairs of sayings, each arranged in peril, giving contrast. So the world's way, Jesus tells us in verses 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great one exercise authority, or in some translation, they translate this word as dominion over them. And Jesus describes the kingdom way in verses 43 to 44. But it shall not be so among you, 
but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And the world's way is well known from everyday experience. I mean, uh, the hearers of uh, this gospel, they did not have to look far in first century Palestine to see the heavy-handed rule of the Romans and those uh, in the Herodian dynasty. The world's ruler, Jesus tells us, rule by power, coercion, they lord over and exercise authority. All this to emphasize a negative sense of control and oppression and dominion. While this is the world's way of leadership, Jesus' followers are to operate under a different set of values. And using the present tense, Jesus does not so much command what they must do, but instead state what the way things are right now is not so among you. As a commentator points out, verse 43 is therefore not an admonition to behave in a certain way as much as the description of the way things actually are in the kingdom of God. Jesus also sets out the self-sacrificial nature of servant leadership. Jesus, in essence, by doing so, repeats and drives home what he has already said in Mark 9.35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever wants to become great must be a servant. Whoever must, wants to be first must be a slave. And to get that, to, to be slave of all is lower than even a mere servant. That's how we, we need to be. But take note of this. Jesus does not condemn power and authority per se. What he does is he addresses the abuses and misuses of power and the value that lies at the heart of it. Our self-centered, glory-bent hearts. Jesus' way of leadership is radically other-centered, focused on meeting the needs of others rather than controlling others to meet one's needs. The value of Jesus' kingdom turns the world system upside down. And Jesus goes on to, to fill up, to describe the upside-down nature of the gospel. We see this in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The climax of Jesus' teaching comes as He applies this upside-down nature, this paradox to Himself. The ultimate act of servant leadership is the Son of Man's sacrificial death as a ransom payment for the sins of the world. The Son of Man recalls Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, where one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days or God Himself. He is given authority, glory and sovereign power and is worshipped by all nations and peoples and receive an eternal reign and kingdom that will never be destroyed. This gives us a glorious, exalted picture of the Messiah. And this explains why Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. No one will expect one destined to receive eternal glory, worship and honour and rule to come as a lowly servant. 
Still less would they expect Him to give His life as a ransom for many. And the meaning of ransom here is a price of release. It refers to the price paid for the release and setting free of slaves. And the verb form, action word form of uh, ransom is redeem. And it means to set free by paying a ransom. But it was also used in a more general sense as to liberate or to deliver from an oppressive situation, to set free, to rescue, to redeem. And this word often refers to, Jesus, uh, to God's rescue and deliverance of the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7 say, and says that in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The sense here is the son of man's death will pay the necessary price to set his people free. And the word for here, used here as a sense of substitution, meaning in place of or instead of. Put them together, it tells us that Jesus, he pays the ransom price both on behalf of and in place of the person that is free. And the ransom price is Jesus' life. The Son of Man gives His own life on the cross to provide redemption or release from sin. Jesus' life is given for the ransom of our lives. And, and this phrase recalls the background from Isaiah 53, verse 11 to 12. This suffering servant, this servant saviour will justify many and bear their iniquities. We are ransomed from the penalties of our sins. Jesus has paid the price in our place. But also, Jesus has set us free from the captivity of sin. The power of sin that enslaves us has been broken. Has been broken. We sin-blinded disciples can now truly see Jesus for who He is. We can now understand His instructions and command. In other words, Jesus not only frees us from our sins, but enables us to follow Him. You know, church tradition tells us that Mark, as he wrote this gospel, he collected the stories, preaching, teaching of the Apostle Peter as Peter ministered in uh, uh, Rome. And he wrote this in this Gospel of Mark. And we see Peter, some years later, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 19. This is what Peter writes. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. After Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection, Peter, the rest of the disciples like James and John, they placed their trust in Jesus and they had their eyes open. They finally understood what kind of Messiah Jesus is. That He is the Son of Man that came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Beloved, how then should we respond? How then should we respond 
we, we, should, we should receive Jesus Christ who served us by His ransoming death, freeing us from our sin blindness, and then we should serve others. You know, my non-Christian friends, there are some maybe among us today or those, some, some may be watching online. I speak to you here. Jesus laid out our greatest need clearly here. It's not rescue from oppressive power structure, although social justice is commendable, but rescue from our sins. And He has ransomed us from our sins. And just as we cannot perform our own cataract surgery to help us see, we need Jesus to free us from our own sin blindness. You know, we can practice servant leadership. That is commendable. But you still need the servant saviour to open your eyes and change your heart from the inside out. So my friends, if you desire this rescue and this change, will you allow Jesus to serve you? Firstly, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner and suffer from sin blindness. Then you trust in Jesus as your servant, Saviour. And then you confess and receive Jesus as your Saviour and Lord. And if this is your desire, you can reach out to your Christian friends who are watching, maybe watching the video with you or have brought you to this service, or you can reach out to any of the pastors and elders. And we would love to tell you a little bit more about the servant, Saviour, whom we serve. I also speak to you now, beloved church. Jesus has served us. Will you serve others? You know, there, are specific, there are many ways for us to serve and follow an example of Jesus, and I, I can list three here. You can serve in the CJ ministry. You know, in our recent uh, quarterly congregational meeting, Elder Caleb has spoken of the need uh, that we are uh, facing in the CG ministry. We need people to serve by leading CGs. And you can approach Caleb if you desire to help. The welcome team you know, also has needs. You know, with more members coming back, we need greeters, ushers, and people to help with the car park. And you can approach Deacon Siangtek or Deacon Suga if you can serve. Let them know. And you can serve in this way as well. And you can serve in many, many other ways. Formally, as I mentioned, or informally. Or informally, if you know the needs of other members, you can take initiative on your own to, to serve and care for them. Now, recently, I met uh, uh, Genevieve and Martin, and they told me how they have visited and helped with George and the Yo family. And they are not alone in this. I know there are many others in the church that have helped them. I know Martin Chan and family has also done so. So thank you, GBC. I am encouraged. Keep it up. You don't need a formal program. You can do this informally. Serve one another. Keep it up. And follow the example of our servant, Saviour. May we, as a whole church, serve and care for the whole church. Now, in conclusion, Commentator James Edward writes, The death of the Son of Man on behalf of the many is a sacrifice of obedience to God's will, a full expression of God's love, and a full satisfaction of God's justice. As we reflect on this, beloved, ask yourself, how has the ransoming death of Jesus Christ encouraged me to trust Him, love Him, and serve others. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for my life. 
freeing me from the penalty and power of sin. Please help me not to seek my glory, but Christ's glory. May I trust and love Him and spend my life in service of others so that Jesus' name might be magnified and you, God, be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.